Well, I hope that over the last several weeks that you're getting a feel and developing more of a sense of awareness of how God is working through Hillcrest here in New Albany. Several weeks ago, we shared about five ministry partners that we have as a church right here in New Albany. And then last Sunday, we talked about some mission partners that are extended out a little further from us. And then this morning, uh, sharing with you a little bit about how God is working through this church to have an impact in Wales, how God is working through this church to have an impact in Portugal. And so may that impact continue to increase. And then even as we send out these boxes. Uh, so God is at work through Hillcrest, probably in ways that most of us never think about or don't think about enough. Amen? And so that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing and also giving you a chance to, to be encouraged and challenged and to respond next week by making some kind of commitments as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and leads you. So I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to read a, a great text from Revelation 7 in just a moment. Uh, I think our reading, our New Testament reading as a church, as uh, we've been going through Revelation the last uh, oh, couple of weeks and started teaching uh, on Revelation on Wednesday nights, uh, the last two Wednesday nights, and so this, this uh, is good timing uh, for this message. As you're read, uh, turning to Revelation 7, uh, let me uh, read a couple of verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, and by his stripes you were healed. For you, like sheep, were going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Another translation of 1 Peter 2 reads as follows, For you have been healed by his wounds. You were lost with no idea where you were or where you were going, but now you are kept for good by the shepherd of your soul. The shepherd of your soul. I want to share with you for a few moments on a shepherd, not only of our soul, but a shepherd to the nations. And so uh, let me read with you from Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And this angel said to these four other angels, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. 
Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. 144,000 children of Israel were sealed, Jewish people. That's the first picture. And then the second picture after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I, John, said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we confess you as the one true, living, and eternal God. Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and present with us through the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in essence revealed in three persons. Teach us for your glory today and ready us for the day when we will see you when each of us will stand before you and we will give an account of our stewardship, on that day may we be found faithful. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 7 consists of two paintings, if you will, or two pictures. The first painting, the first picture is in the first eight verses that we read of 144,000 witnesses on this earth. These are Jewish evangelists, 12,000 witnesses from each of the 12 tribes 
of Israel. That's the first picture. That's the first painting. The second painting is found in verses 9 through 17, but it's not a picture. It's not a painting of what's on the earth. The second is a picture, a painting of heaven. And with the Lord Jesus Christ seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Verse 17 of our text says, Jesus, this risen Christ, is described as the Lamb of God. This great shepherd who is caring for the nations, Jews and Gentiles alike, all those who've been saved and who are described as having their been washed clean from their sins and clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 9 of that text that we read, it says there was a multitude, 144,000 Jewish witnesses are mentioned on the earth, but then the multitude that John sees in heaven is beyond number. And so here's the context. You, you read that and you think, well, what does all of this mean? And so I want to take a, just a couple of minutes and and share with you some of the background from Revelation leading up to this specific text, and then I'll make some comments about the text. But what's going on? What's led up to Revelation chapter 7? What about 40 or 50 years after Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead, one of his first disciples, John, now is in his 70s, perhaps 80s. He's an older man, especially in the first century. And John the Apostle has been faithfully ministering the word. He has been a herald, preaching, That's to herald, to preach, which is more than just specifically preaching. John has been talking about Jesus. He's been teaching about Jesus, sharing, proclaiming, perhaps in cafes and coffee shops or just wherever people would meet. He is witnessing regularly, sharing with other people about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he's having such an impact that he's upsetting the religious and political powers that be to the point that he is arrested and he is banished to an island called Patmos. Patmos in the first century was an island where Rome sent all criminals. So it was like, a, it was just like instead of building a prison, you just send them all to this island. And they're confined there. So here this old man, the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 says, and he says, my crime... What put me here on Patmos was I was faithful to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, was banished. And while on that island, an angel of God delivers a message to John, and that message to John comes in the form of a vision. God the Father and Jesus the Son invite Jesus to see, to see what's in the future, to see what is ahead. That's the book of Revelation. Revelation is an unveiling, a revealing of what God has in store. And so John begins to see this. And the first thing that John sees 
in eternity as he sees the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen and glorified and Jesus says to John, I am the one who lives. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And in my hand, I am holding the keys to death and to hell. And so, John, you are to write everything that you are going to see and put it in a book and send it to the churches, the churches of that day. And then in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, it's all about the seven churches of Asia Minor. John writes this vision, sends it to the church. And in these seven churches, John sees that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is standing among them. Standing among them. He's with them. He has a presence there. And then in chapters 4 and 5, after Jesus delivers specific words, specific messages to his churches, and by the way, there were messages of commendation, as well as messages of condemnation. I would think today that Jesus would have a word for us. What do you think Jesus would say to Hillcrest? Perhaps words of commendation and also perhaps some words of condemnation. And so you see this this word of the Lord to his church. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we're getting to chapter 7. It's all about God's throne room. In chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, John sees God on the throne in all of his glory, and he's being worshiped and praised. And and then in chapter 5, it begins with something that causes John to weep. For in chapter chapter 5, verse 1 of the Revelation, if you have your Bible, you can see it in the very first verse. It says, God the Father is seated on the throne, and in his right hand there is a scroll. And on that scroll there are seven seals. And God the Father is holding this scroll on heaven's throne, and John begins to weep because there was no one worthy to go to to the Father and take the scroll from his hand. No one was worthy to take, to approach him and to take the scroll. And so John weeps and then an elder says to John, do not weep for there is one worthy. And he saw the lamb, the risen Christ, worthy. And he goes to the Lord Jesus and takes that scroll from, from the throne of God. So what is that scroll? That scroll is... Everything that you see in the book of the rest of the book of Revelation. Jesus takes the scroll. That scroll is a blueprint for the future. Uh, Any of you ever have a blueprint made for a house or a remodeling project or a blueprint? If you're a contractor, one district, you're used to seeing blueprints. Blueprints say, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be. And they're very specific. This scroll that God is holding is his blueprint. It's his design. It's his plan for the future, for a new heaven and a new earth. A blueprint for a new age, for a new time, when there will be no more sin and no more pain and no more sorrow and no more war. I heard my phone 
go off this morning at 5.30 a.m. I received a text from a family, some friends that we love, who said farewell to their 91-year-old dad. And while they grieve, they grieve with certain hope, the great hope of heaven with their precious dad joining with others to worship the Lord without any more COVID issues, without any more bad heart issues or diabetes issues, no more growing old, no more decay, no more death. All of that is gone. That is what's ahead of us as the bride of Christ. All of it's described in the blueprint that God has established. And so our God has a blueprint and all of it is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't learn this in school, high school, college, but if you take a history class, you won't hear anyone teach you about world history uh, that there's one who's in control of it all, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I as believers process all of past history and all of future history through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll find that in the scriptures, but you won't find it in history books. Our God has a blueprint. And I shared this past Wednesday night, God, uh, deism, Deists believe, yeah, there is a God and he's created everything that exists and everything that we see and everything around us. He created it all and he wound it up like a, a top and then he's removed himself and he's just letting it spin however it wills. It's deism. Bette Mittler made a popular song several years ago. God is watching us from a distance. It's deism. Just not true. God is very much involved, very much controlling history, controlling all of creation, and working through it all to achieve his purposes. And we see this final blueprint in the book of Revelation. However, when John sees this, again, he sees the Lord Jesus take the scroll, and Jesus takes the scroll, and this new age is about to unfold. And so all of heaven at the end of chapter 5 begins to worship the Lord with exuberant praise and excitement and enthusiasm because they're anticipating everything now that is about to take place. Everything is going to unfold and be made new. However, before this new age, before the Lord Jesus ushers us into eternity, starting in chapter 6, God, a righteous, holy God, is going to judge sin. He's going to pour out all of his righteous indignation and wrath upon sin. And so in Revelation chapter 6 through 16, there's one theme. 11 chapters, 6 through 16, John writes of great judgment. And you'll read about seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, each of those seals, each of those seven trumpets, each of those seven bowls represent God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. And the Bible refers to this time as the great tribulation. The great tribulation. As you read and study Revelation 6 through 16, that's what you'll find. Tribulation. Also notice from the text in John chapter 7, verse 14. If you have your Bible, look there. He, John mentions a great time of tribulation. 
Prior to this, in chapter 6, verse 17, John also writes about a great day of God's wrath. So before Jesus restores his creation, before he recreates a new heaven and a new earth where we all reign with him, a righteous God is going to judge sin, thus the great tribulation. And I personally believe from studying scripture that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as his bride, as his church, will not go through the tribulation. We won't experience that because sandwiched in between the end of Revelation chapter 5 and the beginning of Revelation chapter 6, I believe the church is going to be lifted up from off the face of the earth into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Listen to Paul describe it. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have died, who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For listen to this. Paul writes, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, he's talking about we who are alive and remain on this earth, until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain on the earth shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Isn't that a comforting thought to know that you and I are not going to have to go through this tribulation period that's going to occur on this earth before Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom and makes everything new? Be comforted with these words. And so when this great tribulation begins, this begins to be described in Revelation chapter 6, if you and I as believers are still alive on that day, we're going to be taken up into his presence and remain with him until he returns to set up his kingdom. And so in Revelation chapter 6, the church is taken from off the earth and the tribulation period begins and these seven seals begin to be opened in chapter 6. I'm getting closer to 7. These seals, the, the seals begin to be opened and so this tribulation, this wrath begins to be poured out and the first thing you see are the four a horseman of the apocalypse in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 12, saints in heaven who have been martyred during the tribulation cry out for justice. Verses 13 through 16, those on the earth, this, this tribulation as it gets started is so bad, so horrific that those who are still on the earth begin to seek to hide from God the Father and Jesus the Son trying to hide out from his wrath Look at Revelation chapter 6. Look at verses 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, what? Hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. 
and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You know what that means? Unbelievers who are on this earth as the tribulation begins begin to recognize that they're going through the tribulation, and all of this is from God and from his hand, and they're fearful. This, this tribulation is just getting started here in chapter 6. It's just, just beginning. Thus we get to Revelation chapter 7. In the middle of this tribulation, as it begins to be poured out, God's wrath on the earth, a horrific time, John also gives, is kind of given a reprieve. God gives him a picture. As we read in Revelation 7, the first picture is found in verses 1 through 8, and you see two things. In the midst of God's wrath, you see mercy, and you find a promise. Look. In Revelation 7, if you have your Bible, follow along with me. The first three verses and kind of try to understand this picture of what John sees. He sees four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, which is conveying north and south and east and west. There's an angel on each corner. And these four angels, the Bible says, are holding or holding back the four sweeping winds of God's judgment and wrath. That the winds should not blow, that with the intent of more wrath and more judgment falling on the earth. And so it's a picture of these four angels, these messengers, these agents of God, agents of his righteous destruction, of his wrath being poured out on the earth, ready to act as he commands. However, their hand of judgment is stayed. The wind is not blowing. The wind is being held back or at least delayed for a time. And in the midst of such horror, John sees another angel. Look at verse 2. Another angel rises up from the east. This angel is the angel of mercy. And with this angel, there is a seal of the living God, that seal in which he marks those who belong to God on their foreheads. If you'll go over to Revelation chapter 14, if you have your Bible, flip over there with me. Read Revelation 14. What is this seal? Well, Revelation 14.1 tells us what it is. This seal is the name of God the Father written on their foreheads. And so as this wrath, as this destruction is being poured out, these four angels, these agents of God who are mediating this wrath, this horror on the earth, there's another angel rises up. He's an angel of mercy, and he brings with him God's seal. He brings a seal of God, and that seal symbolizes divine possession and protection. One New Testament scholar, Danny Aiken, writes about this seal it is a stamp of divine ownership and authenticity. It functions as a divine commitment that God's people will not experience the wrath of God. This seal also stands in stark contrast to the later marking on the foreheads in Revelation 13 of those who take the mark of the beast. This is a contrast to that mark. And so the point of this is in God's wrath, he shows mercy. 
In verses 4 through 8, we see that God keeps his promise. This seal and this promise is extended to these 144,000 Jewish believers who are saved during the tribulation. God is not through with Israel. God is not through with Israel. For in the tribulation, the Bible says that he will bring Israel back to faith. They will recognize him as their Messiah, as their Christ. And here 144,000 of these Jews come to faith in Christ. During this tribulation, God saves them, and they are functioning as witnesses. Witnesses during this tribulation, and many of them will be persecuted, martyred. And so the point of, the, of this is those who belong to Christ can expect his, his protection, not always in the form of, that we think of it. But I want you to think about this. As unfaithful, as unfaithful as Israel had been to God throughout their history, how they even had rejected Christ and demanded for Christ's execution, think about God is still merciful to Israel. He's still merciful. And let me just say this to you. We as a nation have been blessed, amen, as Americans. We still need to support and be friends of Israel. Contrary to what some of these new young politicians come up and what they say, and they don't know the Bible, they're ignorant of the scriptures, and they would call us to abandon Israel, it is a mistake. We need to continue to be allies and to support Israel. It's in scripture. And think about this, even as unfaithful as you and I have been to the Lord Jesus in our lives, as unfaithful, disobedient, as wayward as we have been, our God is merciful, faithful, and true even to us today as his bride. You and I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, secure in him. And so having said all of that, Here's the question for consideration. What does all of this have to do with missions? What does this have to do with our mission emphasis as a church and our mission offering and asking all of us to be praying about making some missional commitments? Well, it brings us to the second picture. The second picture is found in verses 9 through 12. It is a picture not of the earth, but it is a picture of heaven. The first picture is of 144,000 Jewish witnesses on the earth witnessing and suffering during this tribulation period. And the second picture, starting in verse 9, is a, of a great multitude in heaven beyond number. And notice how the multitude in heaven is described. The Bible says that there is a multitude in heaven. This is what John sees, a multitude gathered from the nations. The gospel and the lamb, it says, has touched all peoples. John, in eternity, sees a massive display of humanity that has been redeemed from every nation and tribe and people and language. And what John sees doesn't look like us. It doesn't look like New Albany, Mississippi. It looks more like this. Tribes and tongues and people groups from every nation, every pantata ethne, every people group. He sees them in heaven. This picture fulfills God's promise to Abraham. You remember God's promise to Abraham? 
God called Abram to be a missionary. Get up from your home, leave where you are, go to a nation that I'll show you, leave Ur to the Chaldeans, and go to this land, go to this nation that I will reveal to you, and when you get there, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all families of the earth. That means all nations. All nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This text allows us to see God's covenant with Abram being fulfilled. I, when I was a little boy, I grew up in church and we learned songs. We learned about, right? Uh, Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white, all precious in their sight. I learned that when I was a little boy. And then I learned that other one. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And you start shaking your hands, stomp your feet, spin around, went through all the actions, right? What is that song about? I, I am... Father Abraham, many sons, I'm a son, you're a son, daughters, children, descendants of father. What's that song about? It's a great song. This song is about the theme of the Bible. It's about God's glory. It's about that glory covering the earth with all peoples worshiping our God and hallowing his name. Remember Jesus in the Lord's Prayer when he taught his disciples to pray, the first thing, pray, our Father who art in heaven, glory be to your name, hallowed be to your name. It's the theme that runs through the Bible. God's preeminent concern throughout the scriptures is his glory. His name being worshipped, his name being praised, his name being exalted. And the Bible says that one day every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, what? To the glory of God the Father. John sees what's coming. Sons and daughters of Abraham, his seed, now all gathered around the throne of heaven, singing and shouting praises and songs to the Lord. Think of this. There are 12,000 people groups on the earth today. 12,000 different people groups on the earth. And every one of them are represented in heaven. All singing, all praising. Do you know there's going to be one new language in heaven? And all these people groups are gathered around the throne worshiping and praising the Lord and there's no more prejudice, no more ignorant, ignorant, learned, taught, prejudicial ideas and views towards other people being less than us or beneath us. It's all gone. No more bigotry, no more hate, no more ignorance. Jesus said his gospel, his good news will be heard and believed among all peoples of the earth. And they're described here. They're all standing before the throne. You remember the question in Revelation 6, 17, who can stand before him? Only those who are redeemed. Their clothes, the Bible says, have been washed. White robes of righteousness have been extended to them. They're pure, pure in God's presence. He says, worshiping him with instruments of what? Palm branches with joy and praise. And their confession, their confession at the throne, these peoples of all nations, they're crying out continually in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And Jesus, that great shepherd, has sealed them and protected them and saved them and made them pure. And then we close. Not only saved, not only sealed, but satisfied. Satisfied for all eternity. Satisfied for when I was growing up, I used to listen to some Rolling Stones. And Mick Jagger, you remember that song? I can't, not good English, sold a lot of record. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get any satisfaction. Saved, sealed, and satisfied for all eternity. Those who John sees worshiping in heaven are those coming out of the tribulation who have joined with those who have gone on before them, all redeemed, sins washed by the blood of the Lamb, clothed in righteousness, verse 15, enjoying his presence before the throne in his perfect presence and worship, serving the Lord. Verse 16, notice he's providing, supplying all their needs. He says, they'll never hunger again. There'll never be hunger pains in heaven. They'll never thirst again in heaven. None of those things will happen from that day forth in all eternity. And in verse 17, the risen, glorified lamb promises to be our shepherd. Our perfect, perfect, great shepherd for all eternity. Sounds like Psalm 23 to me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, I don't need anything. We won't need anything. The Lord, our shepherd, sounds like the good shepherd in John chapter 10. My sheep know me, and they know my voice, and they follow me. Let me ask you, do you know this shepherd? I'm going to ask you if you were raised in church and you know Bible stories, and you go to church because on Sundays because it's the right thing to do. Do you know the shepherd? The shepherd, have a shepherd of your soul? Where your soul has found satisfaction in him now? Let me ask you a couple of questions for you to ask yourself and to consider as we close. Am I living my life, spending my time, spending my money in such a way that it reflects that this world is going to end? That this is all temporary? Are there any signs, any indication that you're living your life that this world is all temporary? Am I living my life with any sense of spiritual urgency to make Christ known? A burden, a passion to reach others, to make Christ known? Am I living my life in such a way that reflects the eternal destiny of those who are without Christ matters? John Stott describes Revelation 7, and he says the commissioning that we find in the Bible is for the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. The whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world. Listen, God's message to us today is not lighten up, it's tighten up, buckle up. We've been given a mission. And Hillcrest, the task is not finished. He's given us power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you're saved, you're indwelled with power, and he's given us his program, and his program hasn't ever changed. 
We are to be his witnesses in New Albany and to the state and extend to the nations. And I'd propose to you that witnesses is not, remember in Acts he said, and you shall be my witness. Witnesses is more about lifestyle than, than anything else. We, we are his witnesses. Now, whether or not we're faithful witnesses or unfaithful witnesses, it doesn't change fact. We're witnesses. Witnesses. And this morning, I both want to challenge you and to encourage you to be faithful. To be faithful. To be faithful in the little things that you know God wants you to do. And those little things add up to big things. And I pray. I pray that God... Listen, I want the very best for my life, for my family's life. And I want God's very best for Hillcrest Baptist Church. And here's what I've discovered. The more we emphasize God's mission and the more we get in line with him in that mission, the more he's going to strengthen this church. More than any program, men's ministry, women's ministry, Sunday school, when we get in line with God and we have a heart for lostness and we want to push back the darkness and we're committed to missions, God will not only bless it, he'll bless us individually and bless the church in the process. You remember I shared with you last Sunday some of the worst pastoral advice I was ever given when I went through Bible college. And a New Testament Bible professor said, oh, don't worry about that mission stuff. I, this is the worst pastoral advice I'd ever received in my life. You'll never be more spot on than when you, you say, God, I want to live a missional life for you. I want to make you known, as we heard. I want to learn people's names and be kind to people and start a Bible study or reach my neighbors, invite people to my house and get to know them and talk about Christ. And see, we're, we're too busy. And we substitute eternal things that really matter for temporary things that don't matter. We need, to, we need to have a heart for lostness. We need to have a heart for lost people and have God's heart and be on mission for him. And I pray that next Sunday we'll reflect our very best as we make mission commitments. I'm going to say this to you also. I'm saying this to you in love. You're probably going to, some of you get mad. Don't come up here on a missions offering and put a $10 bill into the Lord and expect it to, to be for God to do anything or be pleased or that gets you off the hook. Some paltry $5 bill, $20 bill, and then expect God to, to bless us. And we don't even bother. You hear me? Don't even bother bringing something to God, bringing that as an offering to the Lord and asking him to accept it as, an, as, a, as a form of worship unto him when there's lost, half of our world's population have lost and have never heard the name of Jesus and we're throwing him $10 bills. I pray that you'll, be, you'll, you'll, you'll seek the Lord and seek the Holy Spirit and say, God, how can I live the rest of my life a mission for you, and using my finances and my time and my resources. And God, help me to reach my own family and my own neighbors and lost co-workers for the gospel. And start right where we are, but give him our very best. Give him my very best. Let me pray with you.